We spent a lot of time today talking about roads, active transportation, our city's infrastructure. As we continue to speak to mayoral candidates, today we visited with Rick Schoen and Rana Bakari. We had a huge announcement from the Winnipeg Blue Bombers today, and we had a huge concert announcement for the city of Winnipeg. We also spent a lot of time talking about Halloween and what is appropriate for kids and costumes. And on the subject of costumes and kids, what was your favorite costume when you were a kid? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. And this is the Tuesday, October 18th podcast for The Start. It's Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Second day of Greg and I being back in the studio. Loren's still working from home. I think I've settled in now. I had a full-on panic attack yesterday morning, by the way, to open Why? the show. <laughs> I Just don't because know. there's a face in front of you? Yeah. yeah. Eye I contact. Think... It'll do it, man. <laughs> it was the combination of, I've been <laughs> off for a week, so I'm rusty. Uh, there's a person sitting across from me looking at me, which was weird. And I hadn't worked with you, Loren, in three weeks or a month. And we had this new tech system, so it was just like my, my brain overloaded, and uh, and I almost shut down. May I say you handled it very well. I had no idea you were dealing with so much stress and strain. I would have just looked in a different direction, if that would have helped. <laughs> I, I, like, I anyway, just looked away. <laughs> well, this is the thing. So I've been wondering in the past couple of years, like not just with the work from home stuff, but with most people on their phones just all the time, are we even good at eye contact anymore? It used to be that thing you'd say to your kids, like a handshake, like, Shake, shake the hand firmly, look them in the eye. When you talk to someone, make sure that they see your face, you know? And now we're all just kind of like looking all over the place, I feel. Yeah, that human contact yes. component. I think that if you were even a little bit uncomfortable with it before the pandemic, it's probably been magnified through the pandemic. And with regard to handshaking, I think I've mentioned this. That was one of my jobs as a parent, with my kids' classmates through grades four, five, and six. I taught all the kids how to handshake and exactly as you said, Loren, eye contact and a and a fur you, you know, you've got to uh, have a, a little bit of authority and, and grip the person's hand just a just a tiny bit, channeling my <laughs> Charles Adler there. <laughs> and now you don't even know if people will want to shake your hand or no, not. But not even <laughs> so, that. Like the eye contact. Never mind I feel the like eye contact. Brett's been in that studio staring at the window and I've been staring at a wall and we're all gonna get together eventually and just be like looking just a little bit above the eye line, you know, like at, at the eyebrow. Be the, the whole time you'll be like, Is there a zit on my forehead? Are you looking at a zit? Is there a zit? Because it feels like you're not making proper eye contact. I just think that's where we're like there's a bunch of us like that right now. Eye contact for me has always been kind of weird. I want to, like I'll, I'll I'll hold it for a second and then I'll look away, uh, <laughs> largely because I, I'm a I don't know if it's because I'm fidgety or if it's because I'm just always nervous. But uh, yeah, I, I try to do the uh, eye contact thing, but I can't hold it. I can't. I want to look it. deep into your eyes, <laughs> deep into them. What oh, is Brett. the um, acceptable <laughs> amount, like the length of eye contact, from when it goes to cordial? Friendly to creepy. Like, there's a staff there, isn't there? But don't you have it when you pass someone on the sidewalk and you're both in that kind of mode where you're staring at each other and you think, I should look away now. And then you double down. You're like, no, you look away. 
and you just keep staring. And then I'd it becomes, do we know each other? Yeah, it's eye-to-eye chicken. I had a situation yesterday. I was just out for a walk, and I'm walking up Osborne, uh, just between River and Stradbrook, and I looked over across the street at the, the Anytime Fitness, and there were signs on the windows that said for sale for lease, but there were also signs that said, that's like still signage from the gym saying, let's get started. And I was trying to figure out, is that place closed? I eventually determined they closed back in July. Oh, but okay. there was a young woman who was walking on the other side of the street, and she saw, but she was standing right in front of the gym. So when I stopped, like I stopped dead in my tracks to look at the gym, I think she thought that I was staring at her to the point where she turned around and went the other way. And then when I carried on walking, she turned back around to go because we were walking in the opposite direction. Mm. So there was a, a, a situation where I was not trying to make eye contact, sure. but I think she thought I was. And then I felt, oh, well, now I feel pretty bad about You're that. You're just reading a sign. <laughs> I was just curious what was going on with that, Jim. I'm just reading a sign, lady. <laughs> you don't have to run. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. In a moment, we're going to tell you how you can win some tickets for Brian Adams. Uh, but before anything, coming up at 7.05, remember, you know what? I haven't been to, a, uh, been to the doctor in a while, and uh, this year has been a stressful one, so mm-hmm. I probably should go to say, hey, doc, how's my blood pressure? I was just going to say, when was the last time you even had your doctor check your blood pressure? Because after 7, there's a growing concern among health professionals that Canadians are developing high blood pressure younger than expected. I think we put that in a higher age category. And and that's a big concern because they call it like an on-ramp ramp to stroke and heart disease. You need to catch it early before it becomes too late. And so at 7.07, we'll speak with some experts on why they're worried more cases of blood pressure, high blood pressure, are going undiagnosed and how the pandemic may have made it worse for so many of us. We'll get into that just after 7. And as far as those Brian Adams tickets goes, we'll tell you in our next segment how you can win those. But it does tie into what we are about to discuss because the countdown is on. And no, we don't mean to next week's election. Lol, we're talking Halloween. <laughs> I don't know how many kids out there are like election time. No, they're thinking costume time, candy time. If you have a household with kids, you've got it sorted. You might have it sorted out by now as to what they're going to wear on the 31st. I do not. I'm not in that category. If you have a party planned, if you're thinking about the costume or planning something, you might still be in that planning stage. But we've got some Halloween questions this morning that we wanted to delve in with you. And first off, Greg, growing up or as a parent or an adult who loves Halloween, did you do store-bought or home- or homemade? Homemade. My mom made all of our costumes growing up. I don't ever remember doing a store-bought one. I can remember coveting the store-bought one for whatever reason. We always seem to want what we can't have. My mom would never would never go down that road, but I always thought, oh, I want to be Superman with that uh, paper smock thing that ties up in the back <laughs> and that really lousy mask. And I was jealous of the kids at school who had those, yet ultimately had the best, always had the best costumes. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Like, like what? Uh, grade one, no, I guess it was grade two, had this incredible clown costume my mom sewed by hand. It was orange and yellow. I was Lulu the clown, complete with she used red yarn to imitate the red clown hair, had the full suit. Uh, Batman when I was younger, 
Um, I just had one that came and went that she made for me when I was younger. But I'll tell you, the best one of all time was handmade, and it wasn't when I even when I was a kid. I was an adult. Okay. Um, Brett, you? For me, as a kid, uh, pretty much all homemade by my mom. Uh, and as an adult, when I've dressed up, for the most part, they've been... Um, I've tried to, to put them together myself. There have been a couple that I purchased. Like one year I dressed up as Chucky from Child's Play and my then girlfriend dressed up as sexy Chucky. <laughs> of course, natural <laughs> <Yeah>. progression. <laughs> that was a good costume. And um, and then there was one year where I dressed up as the Joker and uh, I, I got the idea because I worked at this place in Polo Park. It doesn't exist anymore, but it's called it was called Coliseum. And it was basically cheap. Uh, men's dress clothing and they had this purple suit and I thought that would be an awesome costume and it, as it turned out it looked good in the suit because uh, purple's my color but uh, so I did a Joker costume and then my best one was for a wrestler called Mankind who had because uh, Gags Unlimited when they were on Osborne they've since moved but they, I could see the mask in the window and I thought that is an amazing mask and all I had to do I went to he was kind of a, a bigger guy, uh, so I went to Value Village and bought the biggest white shirt that I could find. I wrapped a blanket around my stomach and uh, sort of taped it underneath a T-shirt and uh, just some grubby gray sweatpants. And it was the be- that costume was actually a hit at Halloween parties, and it won me a trip to WrestleMania X7 in Houston. See, sometimes it good. starts with the store-bought, like the one store-bought item that you build around. But I have to admit, being terrible at this as a parent my mom was always homemade but i end up it just sneaks up on me and next thing you know i'm like you're gonna be this crash test dummy the costume that i found in a store for 70 dollars because that's all that's left and it's the halloween is nigh like i run out of time but the store but i have to say they do a great job but the uh, the homemade stuff is always better the challenge right now and i'm curious for any parents out there is that there's just some rules in school that the kids can't come as like I know clowns is a no-no in a lot of schools. You can't be a can, clown. You can't be a clown because the clowns stop being funny oh. for you know in some respects, right? Like the the it incarnation mm. of oh, the clown. So the it ruined it. Right. Or just think they're scary. And then there's that debate like is is it too young for your 5-year-old to be a zombie or is that cute? You know, like when you put the blood and gore on the kid's face. I don't have a problem with it. But I know some people see, seem to think there's a line as to that's too much for a child. So then, what? Then, then what? What's the alternative? Like today, you're going to be a unicorn. Yeah, I guess it's a princess or a unicorn or a superhero or a marshmallow. I don't know, a banana. Like lots of fruits seem to trot out when they're younger. But some kids just know that Halloween's kind of got that scary side to it. And I've for sure seen young kids out there who are got the blood streak down their face and. I don't know. I've, I've wondered, is there a line? Well, and there's that's an interesting flower. contrast. Then there's a huge contrast because if we're being more particular with what we're putting the kids in, and yet then we send them out into the streets where all of the parents and adults are going crazy now with the setups they have at their yes. houses. They put like yeah. so many people put in tons of work and make their like genuine horrifying entryways <laughs> to their doorstep. Uh, so who? Why if? If we're going to send the kids out into that, then why would we have a problem dressing them up like that? Well, that's a conversation with the kid, your own child, if that's where they want to go with it. 
Like, I guess I it's one whole... thing if I'm smearing blood on my newborn for Halloween or something, I guess. But, like, fake that blood. That would be a line, I suppose. But, but who, maybe. But who's maybe... anybody else to tell you? Right. Maybe that. we're the zombie family. Like, I don't know. Yeah. yeah this whole idea of it, telling kids what they can and can't be and, and with the Halloween things. I know there's schools that don't like Halloween at all, that don't do Halloween at all based on my life experience, but there are other places that embrace it and give the kids sort of free reign to be what they want to be and to really explore it. I, yeah, that line of taste, I I guess there is a conversation. I just haven't had to encounter it myself. So I, I won't judge other people for have had to go down that road and maybe walk that line. And you're right, Loren, the, the costumes, that are being made now are spectacular. I haven't made one single costume for my kids. My mom would be so disappointed oh. in me. But the costumes are so spectacular. How can you not just embrace it? 204-780-6868. Your thoughts on costumes for kids. By the way, I want to say thanks to listener Chad, who recently actually invited me out to his place for Halloween in East Kildonan. Says he got 550 kids at his place last year. Last year for trick or treat. That's crazy. Five hundred and fifty. So what did he want you to do? Scare them away? No, just just to join him. <laughs> like he wants you to he wants you to show up as RBF and just stand there and be like, kids, this man cannot afford this situation. Get out of here. He's trying to limit the attendance. Dissuade the children from coming to the door. Who's the tall man, mommy? <laughs> Who's the tall, scary, grumpy looking man? Um, you only get one kid. Get out of here. <laughs> Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, we want to continue the conversation on Halloween costumes for a chance to win Brian Adams tickets, Canada Life Centre, November 2nd. We're going to pick a winner at 9.15. And we are going to, since we were talking about Halloween costumes and kids and where's the line and what's appropriate and et cetera, et cetera. Schools have rules and, like, you can't bring weapons in your costume, for example. But uh, what was your favourite costume from when you were a kid. We want to keep this on when you were a kid because we can do the uh, when you were an adult probably as a separate topic. But when you were a kid, your best costume or your worst, I suppose, if you want to go down that road, maybe you had a costume that just did not work. 204-780-6868. And uh, Loren, why don't we start with you? Well, I have to say the one that made a repeat a few years in a row was the punk rocker, like the Madonna type First Cindy Lauper, then Madonna, because you got to wear your hair spiked and dye it. And I have tons of different bracelets on and those lace, lacy gloves. And so, like, as a 9, 10, 11-year-old, that was awesome. But if I look back at photos with me, this is just so vain. My favorite was when I was a witch. And uh, because my mom braided my hair the night before, and it was really long and went down to my back. And it made it all, like, crimpy. You didn't have things back then to really curl the hair, or we didn't. And I just remember looking at those pictures later, and even now I'll be like, damn, that's some good hair. <laughs> and uh, that's my vain reason for liking that costume. <laughs> like, the seven-year-old me had some great hair, guys. And that's it. I, I don't think – I think I was a plump – I think I might have been a fat witch, if I'm being honest, like a plumpy witch. But my hair was on point. There you go. On fleek. <laughs> the hair was on fleek. <laughs> there you <Jeez>. go. <laughs> um, 
Sarah, what about you filling in for Jeff Braun? Yes, um, I'm going with my first childhood costume that I can remember. I think it was also a repeat a time or two, but it was Cinderella. I was wearing, like, the blue dress that she wore to the ball, and I, just as, like, a seven-year-old, I thought it was the coolest thing. She was my favorite princess. And to top it off, my little sister dressed up as one of the mice. So oh, really? It was super oh, cute. Yeah. I just, yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I'm just glad that I wasn't the mouse, so it does pay to be the older sibling. What's the age? What's the age difference there? She was about three or four, so it was really cute. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. Yes. Did you have actual glass slippers? No. Okay. Yeah, I was always that wondering. That may be a weapon. If you're well. being a, like an authentic Cinderella, do you have to walk around with one shoe? That's true. <laughs> um, what about you, Poitras? Oh, got to go with my pirate costume that I wore yes. every single year through yeah. uh, elementary school. Like how many years, Cam? Uh, the entirety like, of elementary school. Well, I, I grew out of it, but like <laughs> when it fit, I wore that same. It was. Why would I worry? But what I'm going to dress up as every year? Just, you know, just give people what they want. They want to see Cameron Poitras <laughs> as a pirate, and I gave them what they needed, what they required. Well, especially with a beard as magnificent uh-huh. as yours, I imagine that started growing when you were about seven or eight. It was yeah, you're about yeah seven or eight about around Christmas time. Yeah, it started to come in. Yeah, oh, so the five good. o'clock shadow. Okay. I'm picturing Cam with like in grade six with his grade one pirate costume, just a super tight, ill-fitting. <laughs> He's like, I'm not letting this go, people. I'm living the dream. Cam is yeah, so but- dedicated to this costume, he still has a parrot at home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Make sure just, you- cut, just slice it up the back and then, you know, just clothespins. And- Make sure you put that parrot in your will, by the way, because they stick around for a while. What about I you, Mackling? Favorite parrot. costume when you were a kid? Paul Stanley. That was the one that I couldn't think of. Paul Stanley of Kiss. And my dad made this great guitar. Tin foil was never used for better good than my uh, than my flying V guitar with a meter stick as the neck of the guitar, all wrapped in tin foil. Tin foil was a pretty important part of this costume. Had the arm bands on the forearms. They were black, stretchy material with tin foil on the cuff and then stars and everything. <laughs> but went to Saints Roller Rink in Brandon. We did a, a lip sync to I Was Made for Loving You with me and my brother and a couple of friends. And the the front of the thing was just a little bit low cut because if you know Kiss, Paul Stanley likes to show off his chest cheveux. Oh, and I didn't have any chest cheveux. And I was a little, little apprehensive about it, but I got over it eventually. But that Kiss costume, that was spectacular. So I wish I still had that guitar. Did you have the boots? Uh, yeah, my mom fashioned something uh, over top of my... Uh, yeah, I had moon boots for winter boots, those <laughs> crazy things, and she just put oh, stuff over top. Oh, yeah. That's my, great. Uh, yeah, that was fabulous. It didn't look the same on roller skates, but it was pretty cool. Forte, what about you? Oh, you know, I've been a vampire. I've been Donald Duck. But uh, in grade six, my mom helped me out with this costume. I wore one of her house coats. <laughs> I had a black wig that was really messy and it had curlers in it. I had makeup that was smeared on my face, like my lipstick was, you know. I, I, looked, like a, I looked like a woman who had a, a, a rough morning. <laughs> <laughs> what was the inspiration for this? Like you came home and just said... It was to make people laugh. And, yeah, uh, there you go. That's basically it. Yeah, I had a coffee mug, so I looked just like a, like I had a really rough morning okay. as a woman. So it was an ode to moms, <laughs> perhaps. Yes. 
There you go. Yeah, my mom made me all kinds of great costumes when I was a kid. I think the first time we went trick-or-treating, my sister and I, they, my mom dressed us up as Raggedy Ann and Andy. Aww. Um, yeah, I need a picture of this. Uh, there, the pic, it exists somewhere. And then uh, the next year, we were Jawas from Star Wars. The, those little uh, aliens with the, the where their faces are blacked out. You can only see their beady, like their glowing eyes. Did you have the glowing eyes? No, but she did black our faces out, so we had the hoods, so you couldn't see our faces, really, unless you, we were right up close. Um, and then, uh, but I, my favorite was all, and this is kind of silly, because, like, the costume itself, I don't remember it being all that big of a deal, but she dressed me up as Dracula, and she made me this cape, and it, I don't know, it felt like silk, I'm sure it was just cheap polyester or something that she got at Fabricland, but she made me this awesome cape that had a shiny sort of red inlay, and uh, it was great, even though I had to wear the cape. I think I also liked it because I got to wear the cape over my parka. Yes. <laughs> yes. The Every we costume have to ruined by a puffy totally. coat. Totally. Oh, yeah. Oh. In Manitoba, you had to, like, make it six sizes bigger than it needed to be because <laughs> my kid might have to wear this over top of his snowsuit. That was my Batman costume in grade, kindergarten of grade one, Batman and Robin, and I bet you it was minus 30. <laughs> Halloween. That's why that I look like year. a puffy witch. I must have had the coat on underneath in that photo. Oh, look at that. There you no, go. There was a round face. Oh, do you have this picture in oh, hand? I'm sure I do somewhere. I'll oh. go find it. <laughs> she has it in front of her right now. 204 780 6868. Your best or perhaps your worst costumes when you were a kid. For a chance to win tickets to see Brian Adams, Canada Life Center, Wednesday, November 2nd. Sorry, it's, it's Mackling McGarry and McNabb. I'm just looking at a picture from my dad. He just texted me a yes. picture of, of him and my mom also dressed up as Raggedy Ann and Andy. Oh, that is cute. Please send it to us. I will for sure. I won't share it, I promise. I will share the one he's hopefully sending me of you and your sister. I haven't received that yet. So oh, he's uh, sending it. Okay. I don't know. He doesn't have my number, but I'll give it to you if you want it. <laughs> so your, your, your mom and dad were rad, Raggedy Ann and Andy. And is that the same year you and your sister were? Yeah. So like all four oh, of you. I cutest. guess so, yeah. Compare and contrast. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. That, I, that just uh, that stopped me dead in my tracks. Uh, that was a blast from the past. So 204-780-6868. Chance to win Brian Adams tickets. Your favorite costumes when you were a kid. But we switch gears now. Because a growing number of health professionals are worried that too many of us are developing high blood pressure at a younger age than expected. Yeah, so this comes from a new heart and stroke survey that was released today. And it found 7 in 10 health professionals say they're worried Canadians are developing high blood pressure younger. It also found a growing group of medical professionals believe a lack of exercise and a healthy diet increased during the pandemic. And so there's now growing concern that they might see more cases of high blood pressure which is often referred to as the silent killer. Dr. Mawash Saeed is a cardiologist here in Winnipeg and joins us now for more. Good morning, Dr. Saeed. Good morning. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I'm, I'm concerned to hear about this younger group of people maybe developing high blood pressure. What are you seeing when it comes to Manitobans and hypertension? 
You know, the pandemic made it so hard to deliver health care to people, especially for things like blood pressure, where we weren't able to check it in person because of the shift to virtual care and phone appointments. So I am noticing that my patients, who tend to be older because I'm a cardiologist, are having more and more uncontrolled high blood pressure. But I have noticed my young patients also have high blood pressure that hadn't been diagnosed before the pandemic. So I think... Uh, you know, this is a survey study that they did of a thousand health professionals, but I, I will say that I ex- am experiencing very similar things in my practice as well. So, Dr. Saeed, is this a concern with regard to the age of, that people are developing these symptoms, or is it just a matter of because some people have not been to the doctor in so long, these symptoms? Uh, that would otherwise uh, maybe be uh, curable or there might be an an, an assist in the form of a change of diet or medication yeah. or exercise uh, what what's what's the what's the the cause slash concern here I think it's both actually so it's people who maybe would have been diagnosed anyways if they had gone to the doctor for their regular health checkups which really didn't happen during the pandemic uh, people were avoiding going to their doctor's office as much as possible and then there's might likely a component from the lifestyle changes we all experienced during the pandemic both with lack of exercise less access to fresh healthy foods um, and now with the sort of mini recession going on food prices have gone up as well. So I think it's a combination of everything. Um, And then, of course, there's people who previously had well-controlled hypertension who lost control during the pandemic as well. Again, as health professionals, we weren't able to monitor that as closely as we wanted to because we couldn't see people in person as much. So what can we do about this growing problem? So I think the biggest thing is awareness. So, you know, there is good awareness of what high blood pressure is. Um, but I think people need to be aware that everyone's at risk of it. doesn't matter what your age is, what your sex is. Um, making sure you see your health professionals on a regular basis for annual checkups. Um, in terms of things we can do from a, a community and governmental perspective, we can make checking blood pressure a lot easier for patients. So having community blood pressure centers, having um, health professionals in underserved communities, Um, teaching about blood pressure and checking people's blood pressure can certainly help. What do we need to teach when it comes to blood pressure? Because I think we all know we should watch for it. But Mm -hmm. but if we live with high blood pressure for, say, six months, nine months, 12 months, and we don't do anything to address it, what happens to our heart? So it's certainly the number one risk factor for stroke, um, and it's one of the biggest risk factors for heart disease. Blood pressure is basically the amount of pressure your heart has to work against to push blood out to the rest of your body. So it can affect your heart in terms of um, if the heart's under a high pressure load for a long time, you can develop things like heart failure. And then all the blood vessels of your body can be affected by high blood pressure as well. So when you think about things like strokes, heart attacks, or even clots in your legs, um, this can be affected by blood pressure, and blood pressure is a huge risk factor for all of them. So the longer you live with untreated or uncontrolled blood pressure, the higher your risk is of developing all these diseases. Dr. Saeed, uh, blood pressure, can you give us sort of a healthy uh, range of a blood pressure and what those two different numbers mean? Definitely. So your systolic blood pressure is the top number, um, and that's the pressure your heart is against when your heart is actually contracting or pumping blood out to the rest of your body. The bottom number is called your diastolic blood pressure, and that's the pressure your heart is under while it's trying to Um, fill its own blood vessels up with blood. So the heart has its own blood vessels that feed blood to the muscle of the heart. 
and it's that diastolic blood pressure it's working against. So they're both equally important. A lot of people seem to think only the top number is important, but the bottom number is extremely important as well. Um, a normal low-risk blood pressure is around 120, the top number, on 80, which is the bottom number. You're at medium risk of developing high blood pressure in the future if you have any number above this, up to about 134 on 84. And then once you hit 135 on 85, you're high risk for developing blood pressure. We usually diagnose blood pressure on consistent blood pressure checks um, when the numbers are 140 on 90. So anything above 140 on 90, you probably have high blood pressure, and it's time to get checked by your health professional. When we're getting sick, whether it's, you know, we're about to catch cold or maybe COVID, you know, symptoms set in, we know something is wrong. Mm. Are there any obvious symptoms for high blood pressure? You know, it's known as the silent killer. Very rarely are you going to come in with symptoms of high blood pressure unless it's extremely high. When I talk, say extremely high, I'm saying above 180 for the top number and above 100 or 110 for the bottom number. Um, and even then, a lot of people will have no symptoms. It has, it has, you have to wait a bit longer. The main symptom you will get with high blood pressure sometimes are things like headaches, blurred vision, shortness of breath, and chest pain. But again, that's only in very rare and serious cases. In most cases, you're not going to have any symptoms associated with high blood pressure, which is what makes it so scary. Dr. Mawash Saeed, a cardiologist here in Winnipeg, joining us live on CJOB. Thank you very much for this. This is important stuff, and we appreciate the time. Thanks so much. Mackling McGarry and McNabb, October 9th, 2019, will go down as one of the most important days in Winnipeg Blue Bomber history. Let's take you back. That's when starting quarterback Matt Nichols was on the sidelines with that season-ending injury. And Kyle Walters made a move which would ultimately end Winnipeg's 28-season Grey Cup drought. This is just moments before the CFL trade deadline. Three years ago, the Blue Bombers acquired Zach Claros from the Argonauts. And a couple weeks later, the Blue Bombers hosted the Calgary Stampeders. And in his first start, we all got a sense of what is ahead for the Bombers. Calaris was going to run. Now he's scrambling to his left, to his right, back to his right. And he'll throw it deep into the end zone. Darvin Adams, touchdown, Blue Bombers. What a play by Calaris and Darvin Adams. Well, we can tell you just now, the Winnipeg Football Club has announced that it has secured the Canadian Football League's reigning outstanding player, quarterback Zach Kaleros, with a contract extension through the 2025 season. Brett Loren, yet another example of the Blue Bombers' commitment to continuity and winning. We'll have more on this with Ed Tate on Breakfast with the Bombers after Global News at 7.30. Once again, Zach Caleros has signed a contract extension with the Blue Bombers through the 2025 season. Exciting stuff, eh, Loren? Oh, I was just seeing, when we learned about this, I thought this is the great thing that this club is doing, right? Like this, you want to hang your hat on a player like this, but also as fans to know that you'll have them around and those jerseys that you've bought, you know, are going to still, still be proudly wearing Caleros in years to come. I think it's tremendous. And I think the, I think the three of us were all reading the email this morning at the exact same time because I went, Oh, just as Greg said, Hey, look at that. And then you <laughs> sent us a text saying, Hey, that's exciting. <laughs> all in one Truthfully, shot. I read it last night because I ah. I woke up in the middle like in a weird time and I thought do not text Greg do not text Greg because he'll be up and then I'll wake him up and then there'll be all this you know stuff going down but yes <laughs> tremendous stuff <laughs>
road repairs, new roads, bike paths to run adjacent to those roads, bridges, potholes, and more. First up this morning, mayoral candidate Rick Schoen. Rick, good morning. Good morning. So for years, roads, particularly at election time, Winnipeggers have ranked at the top of the list of their priorities for for many Manitobans. Polls this time around show that could be changing. Where where do you rank roads and the quality and etc. Uh, on your list? Well, I still rank it pretty high. I mean, we got to be honest. Like you know, the majority of Winnipeggers are our drivers, and so when I say I rank it high, I mean. Um, you know, focusing on fixing the roads that we've got right now. Uh, obviously, last year we saw what can happen if we, you know, leave our roads to be dis- in disrepair for such a long time with potholes and things like that. So I think we need to make sure that we're fixing our, our current roads first. But um, but as many people know, I'm uh, I'm a person who's also an avid cyclist. So I'm, you know, I'm I'm very focused on other modes of transportation as well. I want to get to active transportation in a second, but if we could just talk about some of those big road projects that we know Winnipeggers want. You mentioned the majority of Winnipeggers are in cars, and depending on where you live, the urgency to, say, widen Keniston or repair Arlington Bridge or or what have you ranks higher Mm -hmm. on your list. And so how will you work with council to determine those major infrastructure priorities? Because there are many of them. The list is long. Which goes first? Yeah, and that's uh, that's exactly right. And when I look at the um, you know the infrastructure plan that we have in the city, one of the big things we need to do for sure is reprioritize some of those capital projects because they are extremely expensive. We're talking five hundred million to a billion dollars for some of these projects, and um, you know they cost us for years and years into the future, which most Winnipeggers don't realize. So there are uh, there are a key a couple of key ones that you mentioned there. Keniston, I mean, particularly at rush hour, Keniston can be a nasty snarl. Um, you know, a lot of that is is due to the uh, the St. James Bridge as well, which um, these days is just not uh, functioning the way that it used to. So is that uh, higher Bridge. on your list, Rick? Sorry to interrupt, but is that would yeah, that go? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about uh, road road projects like Chief Pegwis Trail in this campaign, and for me, it's it's further down the list. Um, you know, in the infrastructure plan, it's not even really slated to start until around 2027 anyways. But, um, you know, Keniston is important. It does, uh, you know, it does go into some pretty heavy residential and commercial areas. Um, I would like to look at a plan that doesn't necessarily widen Keniston into a massive freeway. Uh, potentially, there's a few other things that we can do when we're looking at St. James Bridge and, and maybe tweaking the flow uh, of traffic a little bit. Uh, Arlington Bridge, I think, is, um, you know, it's an important one as well. It does connect the city. It's, uh, you know, Louise Bridge is another one that, um, you know, is uh, is part of, a, uh, you know, the master transit plan at some point that needs to be looked at also. Rick, I'm not getting a sense of which one of these capital projects are, are your top priority. Well, I think I think uh, Keniston at the moment would be one that would be on the plan. It needs to be fixed. Um, you know, that one's slated to start looking at around 2027. We've got a class three estimate on that one already as well in the $600 million range. So, um, you know, that one is, is really important to Winnipeggers and um, would, would probably be the first on my priority list. Speaking of Rick Schoen, mayoral candidate, and outgoing mayor Brian Bowman committed to a property tax hike every year, some 2.3%, to go towards roads. Will you continue that? 
So I've been pretty clear in this uh, in this campaign that um, you know the, the the city of Winnipeg is pretty strapped for cash. But the first thing we need to do when we get in there is take a deep dive into the books. Um, I wouldn't be uh, proposing a, a property tax increase in the first year. We need to look into the books and see where we're where we're at. How can, how can we um, change the budget priorities? How can we um, you know find new efficiencies and those kinds of things in the budget? Uh, after that point, uh, you know, if we need to, if we need to look at increasing taxes, that might be, you know, it might be a possibility, um, but definitely not something that I would uh, promise Winnipegers in the first year. So then, how do we pay for some of these things, Rick? Because even if you talk about the the multi million dollar uh, widening of Keniston, and then you look at the bridges and all the rest, and you don't want to increase taxes, I understand you want to look for efficiencies. But there, is there other ways to raise dollars if infrastructure priorities list is so long? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, major projects like that are not done are not done by themselves in the city, and those are those are projects that need funding through the capital budget. They need funding through multiple levels of government. There's just, you know, there's uh, it's not. Um, yeah, I mean, those are, again, like I said, there are multiple levels of funding, and so you know, I think what we need to look forth first in what we're doing here is we're spending 150 million dollars a year, you know, fixing our roads. And that needs to be continued. I mean, we have such a massive backlog in in fixing roads, so I wouldn't change that. So active transportation, uh, you've discussed this somewhat. Give us an idea of where that fits on your priorities and and how we integrate that and make it almost, I don't know, acceptable to to those who feel the, the investment isn't really worthwhile in our city. Yeah, I think we have to put the investment into uh, perspective that even, you know, I've proposed doubling the budget up to about $18.8 million from what we're doing right now. Uh, when we put that into perspective compared to the roads budget, it's actually pretty much a drop in the bucket. And, um, you know, what it is, is it's not necessarily trying to flick the switch and get everybody to get out of cars and into, you know, walking or, uh, you know, or cycling. We just don't have a city right now that's designed to do that. So what it is, is it's it's a plan to incrementally try to encourage people to take different modes of transportation. And so if we can start to get 1%, 2%, 5%, or 10% of people out of cars for even short trips, then we'll start to see lower congestion, lower wear and tear on roads. Um, not to mention that, you know, traveling in those modes of travel is just a heck of a lot better for your health and your well-being. Um, you know, you get to see people on the street and see your city in different ways. Uh, I also think that it's important when we're designing these uh, types of transportation that we focus on building them from the core out. Reality is a lot of sub- suburbs are just not built for, you know, are not designed currently for, uh, you know, for active transportation. The trips are much longer. Um, I'd like to see that change too, but, um, but I think the focus on spending the money would be from the core, building from the core outwards. How do you convince them? Um, I mean, because a lot of people are, would say, well, I'm not riding my mm-hmm. bike in the winter. Come on. <laughs> yeah. You know what? You're just not going to convince a lot of people to do that. And I, I got to be realistic about that. But what I do have to say is that I've been cycling in the city for you know well over 20 years. Uh, and, and honestly, starting about 10 years ago, I started to notice a major change. And um, there are a lot more people cycling in the winter uh, right now. Um, you know, the reality is, again, like most, most people don't want to cycle in the winter, but uh, that's why we also need to make sure that we've got a great transit system so that there's a different option rather than taking, uh, you know, a car to where you want to go. We don't have much time left, but snow clearing would then need to happen on those active transportation routes better than some say yep. has, it has in the past. Do we have an easier fix for that? More dollars? What works? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, we don't have uh, we don't really have the equipment right now to keep many of those narrow bike lanes open. Um, there are a couple of machines that I would like to bring into the city. They're you know machines that other cities, other northern cities, are using to clean the snow off, but also to clean just dirt and 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 grime. They're actually designed for those narrow bike lanes, and those are they can actually be duplicated for sidewalks as well. So you can use them for dual purposes. And, uh, you know, even having a couple of those in the city would make a major difference so that we can at least clear, um, you know, the routes downtown. And again, my focus would be building, would be starting from, you know, downtown core outwards uh, into some of the more dense neighborhoods. And, um, you know, so I think machines like that would be a pretty valuable asset to the city. Rick Schoen joining us live on 680 CJOB, mayoral candidate. Thank you very much for the time, sir. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. We have the sounds of the game coming up for you in just a few minutes' time, in four minutes' time. Also, we have tickets to give away at some point this hour for Burton Cummings. We just announced last half hour he's coming to Winnipeg to play at the Burton Cummings Theater for two shows. We've got Up Close and Unplugged, December 28th. We have tickets for that to give away, so stand by for your cue to call. And we also have Brian Adams tickets to give away. Reminder, we're asking you about your favorite costumes from when you were a kid, or maybe your not-so-favorite costume when you were kids. But uh, there's a text here from Val, which I believe, Loren, you flagged, as it pertains to a huge announcement we made last hour. Yes, yeah, CFL's rainy most outstanding player is going to stay in blue and gold through 2025. Zach Calero signing that three-year contract extension. That just in within the last 45 minutes. And Val, in all caps... Thank you for the news about the Bombers and about Caleros. I tried to respond ASAP, but was stumbling around trying to find my phone. It was hard with tears in my eyes. Thank you for making our day with the news. Have a good day, morning. I know ours as Bomber fans will be a banner one. That's from Val. Yeah, and speaking of banners, it could mean a couple more banners for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers on the Grey Cup front. This is a commitment to winning, clearly, by the Blue Bombers who have... Position themselves as the flagship franchise in the Canadian Football League. And it's and it's amazing because on one front you have the Winnipeg Jets who clamor for free agents and maybe have even have trades that are proposed and on the table that players in other cities have no movement or no trade clauses and are reluctant to waive those or have Winnipeg on a list. And in the Canadian Football League, All the players want to come here. They come here for less money because of the commitment to Winnipeg, because of the facilities, because of what happens at IG Field. And then we asked Ed Tate about this as well, about Winnipeg hosting that Grey Cup in 2024 or 2025. In three of the four previous times that the Blue Bombers have hosted the Grey Cup, they had really no chance of being in it. 98 1998, 2006, 2015, the Bombers weren't really in those conversations. In 1991, the first time they hosted it, of course, they'd won in 90 and ended up going to the Grey Cup back-to-back years in 92 and 93. So sort of missed an opportunity there in 91 to win it at home. And this really sets up that potential opportunity to win a Grey Cup at home because I firmly believe this is going to encourage guys that are here now to stay for that run and players who are elsewhere that are looking to get a championship, looking at Winnipeg and going, I want to go there. 
Feel free to weigh in, 204-780-6868. You can also read more at cjob.com. Uh, quick te- contest text and then some good feedback from a teacher as it pertains to Halloween costumes because we're asking you about your favorite costumes when you were a kid or if you want to go the other way, like Sandy, who says the worst Halloween outfit my mom <laughs> made me. I was a witch for Halloween, and she used black construction paper to make me a witch hat. And then the rim of the hat was orange tissue paper. So it snowed, and I was covered in black and orange all over my face. Yeah. <laughs> Creative. I said, Sandy, oh, it's a good idea, but man, the odds that the rain or snow on Halloween are high. Vicky Shea, our colleague at Power 97, once made herself what was essentially a cocktail dress made out of newspaper. Oh. And I think her costume was headline news. It was incredible. It was incredible. But I always meant to ask her, like, so did you treat the inside of the paper? Because yeah. otherwise, how much ink. Yeah. <laughs> how, much, how much of that translated? But um, <laughs> but uh, Loren, uh, Le- teacher Leanne, with some uh, feedback on are some costumes too dark or scary? Well, we were asking at 637 about costumes and this idea that some schools do Halloween very differently. There's also costumes that are not allowed in some schools. You can't have weapons. Some can't have clowns. And we asked, is there a line of an age where it's just too much when a kid shows up with that fake blood or bruises or what have you, zombie look? Leanne says, I'm a teacher who teaches eight-year-olds. And I can say that if a kid wears a scary Halloween costume, I don't have a problem with it. But there are many other kids that are going to get very scared from something like that. So there may be just a line for those kids that are getting scared from the zombies and the scary clowns and costumes like yeah. that. Yeah, I could That's see fair. Yeah, it is fair and I could see that within the schools, but I would say that when it comes to Halloween night for trick yes. or treating, all that goes out the window. But for schools, I could see, you know, the grade 6 kids having to be careful about the other not only other kids in their class, but the other kids in the school as well. So that's a that's a terrific point. Thank my you. Kid, oh, sorry. I was going to say we did a clown thing once a few years ago. My kid had a fear of it, my youngest, and then every single clown since has not been funny to him, so I get it. Feel Even bad. when I popped out at the garage once on him. I feel bad for clowns. You know, they're yeah, just trying to make the world a happier it place. It was supposed to be for fun. And then someone made someone like a killer, cl- you know, just went dark. They went real dark. <laughs> uh, so you can continue to weigh in. And again, for Brian Adams tickets, tell us about your favorite costumes for when you were a kid. We'll pick a winner at 9.15. <laughs> Asking you to text us a story about your favorite costume from when you were a kid. We can do adult costumes later on, another time perhaps. But today we're focusing on when you were a kid for a chance to win. We'll pick a winner at 9.15. And later this half hour, we have tickets to give away to see Burton Cummings. Just announced today coming to Winnipeg for two shows, December 28th and December December 31st. We have tickets for the show on the 28th, up close and unplugged. Question of the day at cjob.com for Mr. Furness. Don't call them first. You'll see why. Call Mr. Furness, 204-832-6243. How many of the mayoral candidates in Winnipeg do you know by name? At last check, 73% said, I know the front runners. that's it. 25% say, I don't know any, and just 2% said, I can name them all. Well, look, every Tuesday and Thursday this month, CJOB has been doing its part to try to introduce you to as many of these mayoral candidates as possible, bringing you conversations with the people who want to be your mayor. We've talked crime, transit, homelessness, and now we want to talk roads. Yeah, and if you can't name all the candidates, I bet you can name some of the top issues like roads. 
road repairs, new roads. We got all sorts of different things we want to talk about with active transportation. Every spring we complain about potholes. And what do the mayoral candidates think they can do about this? Well, earlier this morning we were joined by Rick Schoen and now we are pleased to bring on Rana Bakari. Good morning, Rana. Good morning. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Let's just talk about where you rank roads in terms of a priority, road repairs and road rehabilitation. Um, not above poverty, mental health and addiction, but it's high up there. And so when it comes to that priority, say it's in your top five or so, Absolutely. how do you decide what projects need to get done? Because there's the road repairs themselves, just making sure our roads are drivable. But then there's the bigger projects like, say, an Arlington Bridge or Chief Pegwis or Keniston. How will you work to figure out what's the priority for you there? Yeah, and I think, um, you know what, there's, there's a specific area. I mean, like we just talked about Keniston itself, that area uh, right now. Um, we've seen some great, um, we've seen, you know, it, it's about to become a beacon uh, for urban reserve success and city renewal. Um, you know, and that project itself, uh, it's going to help alleviate some of the housing sort- shortages. It's, it's a major part of reconciliation for Indigenous peoples. Um, including economic reconciliation. So we need to make sure that getting there uh, is accessible for all. So Keniston needs an overhaul. I, I agree with that. But um, I think where I probably differentiate from most is going to be, I'm not sure um, we need more concrete for cars. It could be a shining example of road renewal done right by and, by adding numerous transportation options, rapid transit lines, and wide, beautiful, active transportation paths. So um, I know that my, my vision for that is perhaps a little different than others, but I think that that area we need to really invest in, look at, make sure that we're working with uh, Treaty 1 Corp to ensure that that's, uh, that project is as successful as possible. Rana, you bring up a point here, and I think it's a good one. There are multiple uh, groups involved in, in what Keniston should look like. There's been some pushback, as I understand it, from from the, the federal government and, and others with regard to basically building a freeway through that part of the city. But also within the city of Winnipeg, you're going to have traffic engineers, and, and I would call them the experts on these things that are going to have a vision. So what do you do on a project like this or any other where your vision, your ideals mm-hmm. don't necessarily match up with those of the experts and the civil the civil service says that this is the way we need to go. How are you going to navigate those waters overall when it comes to uh, vision and infrastructure? Well, speaking of Keniston specifically, um, we need to ensure that people can get to what is being created there. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I find it difficult at times when uh, we don't view issues through the lens through which it needs to be viewed. This isn't 1990. We have a very different population right now. We have very different demographic right now. We can't keep planning like it's the 1990s. Uh, we have to change the way that we view the city. If we want sustainable transportation, if we're talking about mobility options, if we're talking about active transportation, if we're talking about reducing poverty, or re- reducing housing issues, then we need to create a city that is designed to do that. So for as long as everyone keeps working in silos and not speaking to each other and the city doesn't have a vision for itself, which I can present, I want an accessible city. I want a city that is inclusive for all people. I want a city that uh, has sustainable transportation that helps us reduce some of the climate issues. Um, We're not going to get anywhere. We're going to be sitting in the same position for the next 20 years. 
How are you going to negotiate? But how are you going to negotiate? What's your your plan? And and you've laid out your mm-hmm. vision, but your vision may not align with with those who 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 ultimately help make the decision. You're one voice. So how are you going to navigate those those waters? You know what? I think that there's a common thread amongst everyone. I, I believe that there is. And if we're speaking about Kenison specifically, uh, I think that what we all want as a city is for this opportunity, this, this, this project that's being embarked on, to be as successful as possible, for it to be as utilized as possible, for it to um, have what, what it's being built for is this welcoming area uh, for not only Indigenous, but, not, but also non-Indigenous peoples. So for this specific area, <clears throat> when it comes to Keniston, um, I believe we need to find that common thread, and I know that we can do it. You know, I, I believe that we can do it. Is there going to be negotiations? Yes. Do we have to uh, find that common thread amongst us? Of course. Um, is it going to be easy? Well, it hasn't been easy this far. But I think that there is there is a reason and there is a purpose behind um, um, how to create that vision for this uh, this amazing um, uh, project that's that's being embarked on on Keniston. So for that area specifically. Uh, I just I hope that we're all considering uh, what the future can hold for that area. So we're speaking with Rana Bakari as we speak to a number of mayoral candidates today about roads and active transportation. And Rana, Winnipeg has no shortage of massive infrastructure projects, all feeling urgent to drivers mm. who use the routes each day. You know, we're talking about the widening of Keniston, but the Arlington Bridge that's been crumbling for what feels like forever is a big one for a lot of people. The extension of Chief Pegwa's Trail, etc. So how will you work with council to decide what needs to be done first? Yeah, and that's a great, <clears throat> that's a great question. I think that um, as mayor, I think the first job that we're going to have to do as a council is to create a strategic plan. Um, and to have our, you know, what we want to do in four years and basically ensure that we are fulfilling that, uh, fulfilling our, our goals for four years. We, you know, with, with the amount of funding that the city have, has, you know, we don't know what the provincial government's going to look like in a year. We don't know what the federal government's going to look like in two years. Do we have, um, you know, folks at different levels of government who are going to negotiate with us and help us uh, to fund some of these massive projects, we don't know. So what we need to do is have our priorities straight as a city council, as a city of Winnipeg, and then and, and move forward with that. But we definitely need to start looking at new sources of revenue. You know, I, I've talked about a platform fee, um, you know, that'll bring in a few million dollars. I've, I've been talking about, you know, how we work with uh, surrounding areas around Winnipeg to ensure that everyone's paying their part. Uh, you know, right now, Winnipeggers are funding, um, you know, everyone's um, infrastructure deficit here. You know, so we just have to have uh, different conversations. Uh, it's a different time. Um, and I think that new leadership is going to have to do that. Uh, we just can't keep doing the same things over and over. Speaking of some of the same things that were done, at least in the past two terms, Rana, outgoing Mayor Brian Bowman, he committed Mm -hmm. that property tax hike. He committed to only raising property taxes to around 2.3% every year and then putting that money towards roads to shore up just the road renewal. Is that Mm -hmm. something you'll continue or or where do you see the dollars coming from when it comes to tax hikes or other? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I I, I appreciate the fact that, you know, Brian had his 2.3% and that that was workable uh, for the time, perhaps, um, what I have committed to is for the next two years, um, you know, it's not going to be more than 2.3%. Um, after two years, if we can show Winnipeggers that as stewards of the public purse, 
they can see uh, some changes in the city, uh, we will have to revisit a, you know, uh, incremental increase in taxes. But in the first two years, I think with Winnipeg is dealing with inflation, uh, with Winnipeg is coming out of post-COVID, there's a lot of people in this city who are struggling. Um, So I definitely don't need to put that burden on them right now. What we need to do is prioritize our budget. We need to get people off the street. We need to get crime in, in check. We need to make sure that we are uh, planning for a city that recognizes everyone in this city, um, and that's that's the only way to move forward. So it's a different it's a different approach, perhaps, but um, but I believe it's the right thing to do. We have just uh, maybe forty five seconds here, Rana. Where does active transportation fit in your vision for Winnipeg? Um, pretty high, you know. Um, if we want to deal with some of the um, priority, prioritizing sustainable transportation in all its forms um, as a mobility option of choice. Um, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's, it's gonna require significant time, investment, and vision uh, to ensure that our city is a walkable and a cycling city as well. Um, not only for those who like doing it, but also uh, in terms of accessibility issues, in terms of recognizing that our seniors' population is growing, in terms of recognizing that some people just simply can't afford cars. Rana Makari joining us live on 680 CJOB. Rana, thank you very much for the time. We appreciate it. Thank you. We have tickets to give away for Brian Adams Canada Life Centre Wednesday, November 2nd. We're asking you about your favourite... Halloween costumes from when you were a kid. And we've got three here, two runners-up, and then our winner, Loren, you'll read the winner. Mackling, you'll read one involving Peter Puck. But uh, Granny Kathleen made us all smile as well, one of our runners-up here. Uh, she calls herself Granny Kathleen, by the way. We're not just deciding that. Uh, <laughs> we didn't dub her Better that. clarify that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Self-acclaimed. Yeah, like when Gary calls himself sleep, like we didn't decide, hey, you're Sleepy Beefaroni. <laughs> Uh, that's how he signs his text. But uh, Granny Kathleen says, send us some pictures as well. First pick is my son. Almost 30 years ago, I made the costume, a policeman riding a horse. His little brother is wearing a costume from a previous year when they were the Saturday Night Live guys. Hans and Franz, we're going to pump you up. A labor-intensive costume, which I was determined to reuse by adding a wig and a caveman suit, and the little caveman was less than impressed. Uh, The horse was made of kind of fuzzy, spongy material. Just think of the fuzzy blankets often used in hotels. It was like that. I saved that costume because it was so much work to make. Over the years, I was happy to let people borrow it. For the last 10 years or so, it hung in the basement. But last year, I offered it to the son who wore it for his 5-year-old son. Great! His son decided to be a guy riding a unicorn. All I had to do was add a fancy unicorn horn. And uh, when he got to school, the 30-year-old fabric began to fall apart. The unicorn skin started to peel off in chunks. It peeled so much the teacher had to get him to take the costume off because he was leaving a trail of unicorn skin and fuzzy dust wherever he moved. But he wore the shedding unicorn that night to go trick-or-treating. He was a very resourceful five-year-old. He simply said he was a guy riding a zombie unicorn. So I'm going to sew my grandson a new costume this year, and we'll discourage him from saving it for his son to wear. I think there's a there's a horror fi- flick in that zombie, zombie unicorn? unicorn. Absolutely, that deadly spike. The best back of at it you? all and the worst of it all. I'm going to look that up. I bet You're you that so exists pretty. in some zombie right now. Zombie unicorn. <laughs> I just thought it was a unicorn.
<laughs> What's the Peter Puck story, Mackling? My favorite costume as a kid was when my dad made me a Peter Puck costume. My dad saw how much I loved Peter Puck. He would give tips on playing hockey during NHL games. Peter Puck was a, a cartoon. Uh, I think uh, it was NBC that invented him way back in the 70s. I had a Peter Puck jersey, Corinne, and so I loved him too. Uh, my dad made two circles for the front and back of the puck out of wood and attached the front and back also with wooden pieces spaced out so that my arms and legs would easily move when I had it on. The spaces around the puck were then covered with cardboard to close it all in. Easy to paint as the face is pretty basic. He then drilled holes for the eyes and I was set. Looking back, I still chuckle as being a girl. Here I was as a hockey puck <laughs> and my friends were all girly costumes. Great memories. Have a great day from Corinne. A tough choice, as always, to pick one winner, but Loren Tina has won the day. Oh, I love the image Tina presents. I was nine years old, and my mom dressed me up as a Rubik's Cube. <laughs> she used colorful duct tape for each side on a cardboard box. To top it off, I wore clogs. And let's just say I'm a bit of a klutz. A hole for my head and two holes for my arms were just my hands sticking out. My girlfriend still laughs at the vision of me laying on the ground, face down, <laughs> Wiggling my hands and my face only 10 inches from the sidewalk. I mean, at the best of times, it would be awkward walking in that. And there you are putting on clogs, like wooden shoes. Yeah. That's great. That's the great. That's the funny thing about like some of the, so many costumes you see look awesome. Yes, but they're so impractical. Like I bumped into a guy at the bar. He made himself this amazing Optimus Prime Transformers costume. <laughs> yes, and I said, "This looks great, man." He said, "Yeah, but you know what? I forgot to factor in. Mm-hmm. What do I do when I have to go to the bathroom? Oh, <laughs> sure, yeah. I had to take the whole thing off." <laughs> to go to the bathroom. So we'll talk maybe about your favorite costumes as an adult next week, but Tina wins the Brian Adams tickets. It's Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Thank you very much for joining us this morning on The Start. More bike lanes or less? Fewer stoplights or more? When it comes to roads, bridges, and active transportation in Winnipeg, you have a lot to say. Yeah, and we're having a lot of back and forth with some of our listeners, like one who wrote, Hi there. As far as improving our infrastructure, it's plain to see that Winnipeg lags far behind other major city centers. In order to improve and grow our city, we have to at least consider tolling some major projects just for a period of time, adding light rapid transit and a proper metro system, and perhaps using more tunnels or overpasses, adding dedicating service roads, collector lanes, and more. A long list of wishes there, Greg. No question, and I can envision it, but is it doable? Does it make sense in a city the age, the size of Winnipeg? Gino D'Astasio is a professor of urban geography at the University of Winnipeg, joins us now. Gino, good morning. Good morning to you. So, Winnipeg, I made this comment earlier that the city of dead ends, Ness, dead ends at St. James Street, Provencher, dead ends at Archibald, Pembina, dead ends at, at Grant. And Winnipeg is, is a city that was a collection of, of six, seven other cities, and so sometimes our basic infrastructure doesn't even connect with each other. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, uh, in fact, 50 years ago, we embarked on an urban experiment called Unicity to try to undo, uh, you know, years and years of uh, fragmentation in our, our municipal structure. And here we are 50 years into that experiment, and Winnipeg remains fragmented and struggling to manage its uh, its ballooning infrastructure deficit. 
So with regard to freeways then, some people will say we need freeways in Winnipeg. That was ruled out a long time ago, wasn't it, Gino? Well, it was. And, you know, it was ruled out at a time when Winnipeg's population really was was stagnant. We weren't growing as a city and a community. And, in fact, one would argue we were shrinking and urban decline was much, much more evident. But as Winnipeggers, we know that the last 15 years in particular, we've seen tremendous growth in our population So right now, what we're facing is a city that actually has to plan for growth. We haven't done that for a long time, and I think that's what's hitting a lot of people. More traffic, more growth, more challenges around development that we hadn't seen before. Planning for urban decline is much different than it is to plan for where we're at right now, which is a modest growth in our population and our economy, minus, you know, obviously the impacts of the pandemic. And is that maybe part of the problem with with much of our infrastructure? We talked we talked a lot this morning about all the bottlenecks that we have in our city. Is it just the the result of the fact that maybe we didn't think far enough down the road, and now we're essentially stuck with all of these throughways that are, create the this gridlock situations? I think it's a bit of both. You know, we did really slow down investments in expanding our infrastructure network that includes not only roads and, you know, we have to balance that, right? Good road access uh, with, you know, investing in, in, in innovation and in transportation like light rail or more bus rapid transit or what have you. We stopped because we didn't have the economy. <clears throat> we didn't have the economy to support that. So now we're playing catch up with an increasing number of Canadian cities that have expended billions of dollars in readying themselves for moving forward into the, you know, into the next couple of decades with with much more robust transportation systems in Winnipeg. We're 50 plus years behind Edmonton's and Calgary's and and all other kinds of cities that are, are much, much further ahead now. So you agree with that listener when they say we lag behind? Where is it? All fronts, roads, freeways, re- transit? Like where? Where do you start? Do you know? I know, and this is the challenge. And and I and I look at a city like Ottawa and and even Waterloo, where they're planning for a future where you know light rail transit is going to be the uh, the guiding kind of uh, uh, mode of transit to move us forward. You know. Winnipeg used to be at the forefront of this with our streetcar network. We we dismantled that. And then in the preceding decades of urban decline, we just couldn't find the way to make the multi-billion dollar investment. And every year that we've waited and, and delayed in investing, we've seen those costs balloon, including, you know, widening Keniston and doing even just the sprucing up of our infrastructure to, you know, remove those dead ends, but also to be more innovative. And, and we just... We have to find a way to make those investments now. Calgary opened their first leg of LRT, I think it was 1982 or 83, well before they hosted the Olympics. I think Calgary and Winnipeg were essentially the same size city at that point in time. Obviously, Calgary was on the precipice of a a boom that probably continues today. Vancouver was such a much smaller place when it launched SkyTrain back in 85, 86, in anticipation of of Expo. But all the growth that's taken place in Edmonton, Calgary, Vancouver, it's tough not to look 
at those investments in mass transit, Gino, and wonder what if Winnipeg had made that bold decision, no no matter the economic times back in the 80s, to just do what most people thought needed to be done in the first place. Yeah, and, and that's that's really it. You know, is Winnipeg ready to become more than just a small prairie city? And if so, are we ready to make that investment? And it is multi-generational investment when we're talking about, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars per kilometer to run an LRT system. But if you look at the biggest capital projects across Canada right now, a lot of them are LRT-based transportation investments in a range of cities that are both bigger and smaller than Winnipeg. We've got a lot of uh, regional transportation networks going in the GTA region. Ottawa's expanding. Edmonton is expanding. Calgary's expanding. You know, as you say, Vancouver. And I might be tainted having spent the last year riding a lot of those systems across uh, North America and into Europe. And there is something transformational about a city that really embarks on its, its next journey of transportation and makes that statement that says, we are going to make a, perhaps a once-in-a-lifetime investment, kind of like the floodway. At a certain point, you have to make a massive investment. And I think Winnipeggers are seeing that we're at that point now. If we grow to a million in the region, how are we going to reasonably manage that growth and movement of people without a massive investment in, in a, a smarter transportation network? Our guest is Gino D'Astasio, Professor of Urban Geography at the University of Winnipeg. So, okay, we, we, if we just decide we're going to make this investment, I mean, how do we do it? Where do we start with making the changes that we would need? Well, and that's the thing. You know, we, we've thought about this long and hard. And for a lot in the transportation and planning departments, you know, there are a lot, there's been a lot of work that's been looking at where we need to go. And I guess the question really isn't about right now where, it's how do we do it? How do we bring the three levels of government, politics aside, to invest in probably a, a decade of planning uh, or a decade of project investments to, to get that first LRT line in or to really make the connections that we need to make that allow people to move much more uh, efficiently throughout the city. I spent last week in Vancouver. I went from downtown Vancouver to Surrey in 30 minutes. And, you know, we can't get to that without saying as a community, it's time to make that unfortunate, you know, five to ten billion dollar investment. That's where we stall. When people see the price tag, it is sticker shock. It's sticker shock. But, Gina, you know, we sometimes say we live in a world where people will say, what about me? What's this going to do for me? And you're talking about a plan that isn't technically for me. It might be for me in my 70s, but maybe not for me right now. And you have to put that aside and say, this isn't going to be the transportation network that fixes your tomorrow. We're talking maybe your tomorrow 10, 15 years from now. Is that an attitude adjustment that needs to happen as well beyond dollars? I think so. And, you know, I think what we should be framing it as around is how does Winnipeg want to look and feel like as a city of one million. And I know that's still, you know, maybe a decade or two away, but we are approaching that question. For the first time in, in a century, we're reasonably expected to hit a million. And if we think we're going to hit a million and reasonably accommodate people moving with the system that we have today, it's not going to happen. 
the the frustration that is mounting with respect to not just potholes but movement is going to be even more problematic as we move into those decades. We have to really take that leap of faith and do something bold and be a leader instead of lagging behind and looking at other cities that are, are passing us by and at a heck of a lot more efficient rate with, with the systems that they've planned. I was just going back and forth, Gino, with a listener named Jesse who says we need to move those rail yards out of central Winnipeg. And I see a benefit threefold there. There's no true east-west uh, traffic corridor in the city and in that uh, latitude of the city across the, the middle top of the city. Uh, obviously, rapid transit and active transportation and redevelopment would be uh, extraordinary in that part of the city. Is that anything that's even on the radar? Is that something that should be on the radar? Well, I think it should. You know, we've talked about rail relocation, but, you know, too, as we, we think about the future, in my view, rail becomes very important. And I think what cities have forgotten in Canada and North America is the importance of a strong rail network. I spent part of the summer uh, traveling through Europe on trains that do 300 plus kilometers an hour that connect cities in hours instead of, you know, days. Canada, as well as, you know, being well behind in, in most industrialized nations, we don't actually have a very well-developed in, intercity rail system that, that also moves people and goods at much faster paces. So not only do we need to move people through our cities, we need to start thinking about how we move people between cities more effectively. And this is taking us a little bit out of Winnipeg. But again, it goes back to the point where we've got to rationalize what we have in terms of our infrastructure for transportation, people, freight, and the movements within our cities. But again, I just can't see how we move as a, as, as a region of a, a million plus coming in the system that we have right now. And if we're choked on Keniston right now, what happens when Winnipeg adds another 200,000 people? Gino D'Astasio, Professor of Urban Geography at the University of Winnipeg. That's a great question. We'll have to leave it on that. Thank you for the time, sir. We appreciate it. Thank you.